BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly... Patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. The Bowery Boys episode 194, Nellie Bly... Undercover in the Madhouse. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for the Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Today, we're bringing you one of the greatest tales of investigative reporting and perhaps something we'd call a little bit daredevil journalism today. This is the story of Nellie Bly and her 10 days undercover in a madhouse. This is an incredible story about a real pioneer in journalism who went to an extreme end to get a very important story. It's funny, Greg, though, because the name Nellie Bly might ring more familiar to our listeners' ears for something that she would do later in her career when she would pull off a stunt that was even more extreme than the one that we're going to talk about today. And we'll get to that one at the end of our show. The one that we are discussing today involving Blackwell's Island is a true New York City story. Nellie was known not just for being a rare female reporter in the doggy-dog late 19th century world of journalism, but also she was known for her fearless exposés. Her entire reputation was made from the events that we're about to describe in this episode. Because we are looking at her very first foray into New York City journalism. It was a dangerous assignment that she took that would have made most reporters, male or female, run for their lives. As you listen to our tell, I want you to reflect on why this story is so engaging. Is it because of Nellie herself? Is it because of the plight of the mentally ill in the late 19th century? There's a lot of components to the story that get wrapped up in a very thrilling way in this particular tale. I should add that this show is being hosted by Tom and me, and a little bit by Nellie herself. We're going to feature her own words in this, perhaps more than we've ever featured another subject, just because her writing is so vivid, and the way she describes these things are incredibly gripping. So join us as we check ourselves in to the story of Nellie Bly undercover in the Madhouse. In spite of the knowledge of my sanity and the assurance that I would be released in a few days, my heart gave a sharp twinge. Pronounced insane by four expert doctors and shut up behind the unmerciful bolts and bars of a madhouse? 
not to be confined alone, but to be a companion day and night of senseless, chattering lunatics, to sleep with them, to eat with them, to be considered one of them, was an uncomfortable position. Those are the words of Nellie Bly herself written for her expose for the New York world, which would then be bound together in a book called Ten Days in a Madhouse. And that, of course, is where we are taking our title for today's podcast. Before we go any further into the story, Greg, I think maybe we should talk about the terminology, because I'm sure we've <laughs> yes. rightfully raised a number of eyebrows by batting the phrase madhouse around like this, or lunatic asylum. Why should we be using these terms that are so offensive to us today? Well, there's actually two issues. First of all, it's those terms themselves, which were used in the late 19th century, but are antiquated, somewhat offensive phrases for describing people that have very serious mental illnesses. But second of all, we're going to have to use these unpleasant words because it's actually in the name of the institution, Blackwell's Island Lunatic Asylum. So they called themselves a lunatic asylum. Yes. So we're going to keep using that phrase and a few other words like insane, mm -hmm. for instance. I mean, that connotes something very different than it did back then. Back then, it was an actual diagnosis. Right. So we're throwing some modern air quotes around the use of these words. <laughs> well, since we're on the subject, let me actually introduce the madhouse in question, the Blackwell's Island Lunatic Asylum, which opened all the way back in 1839. On Blackwell's Island. Now, this is, of course, an island name that we still don't have with us today because its name has since been changed. Today, it's Roosevelt Island, named for the president, Franklin D. Roosevelt. But the original name actually comes from an 18th century owner, Robert Blackwell. Tom, you may recall that we did a podcast on the history of Roosevelt Island a few years ago. A few years ago, we took a great trip out and yeah. have been back out since. I love going out to Roosevelt Island. It's one of my favorite places because of the beautiful view of Manhattan, of course. But there are a lot of historic relics on the island. Right. We've spent many a fun Saturday afternoon. Afternoon, sort of hunting around the old hospital grounds that are out there. The old smallpox hospital, the Renwick ruins, as they're called. So there's a lot of there's a lot of historical relics that are still out there, including one that ties into our story today. Now, as you mentioned, and one of the things you'll still notice when you go out there, it, it, there's a lot of medical facilities. There's housing for medical employees. This island has a long history with health services, starting in 1828, when the city of New York purchased the island for the express purpose of moving out some of the more unpleasant institutions off of Manhattan, where the real estate was getting very valuable. And this was also a time in the city's history where they were dealing with various epidemics as well. So what better use of an island hospital space than that of a quarantine? But Tom, it's not just quarantines. I love the fact that they put a quarantine hospital out here with a workhouse, an almshouse, that infamous penitentiary of theirs. Oh, right. So they These had undesirables, quote unquote. Yeah, it wasn't a place you visited willingly, not like you do today. Among those relics that I mentioned is a condo that's developed today called the Octagon. Oh, right. Yeah. So that Octagon, that original structure that is uh, incorporated into this newer building, is actually the portion of the old, original Lunatics Asylum that was built in 1839. And that's the place where we'll be spending the most time in this show. 
It was the first municipal mental asylum in the United States. So this is at the northernmost end of the island. So, so near the park with the lighthouse. Yes. Uh, in fact, the lighthouse, which was built in 1872, was associated with the lunatic asylum here. And there are many legends that claim that asylum patients actually built the lighthouse. Mm. The asylum had two wings, one for men, one for women that emanated out from this octagon building that had more of the administrative functions. Mental health, generally speaking, I think we can safely say was poorly understood in the mid-19th century. There were rarely those facilities that were actually dedicated to the study and curing of mental illness. Well, who was even getting checked into these asylums? Who was being diagnosed with mental illness? Well, unfortunately, it was a very broad definition here, at least and from our modern context, looking back. There were people with genuine disturbing mental illnesses at this time who needed to be treated. They were certainly not being treated properly in a mid-19th century asylum. In addition to those people, there were, of course, those with minor issues, mm. temporary situations next to people who today we wouldn't even classify in this group at all. People just struggling with day-to-day -day life issues. Well, homosexuals, for instance, oh. prostitutes, even those who just spoke in foreign tongues. If you were diagnosed with a certain mental illness, it was often seen as more of a moral failing, a deterioration of the mind that came from a deficit of personal character. So not exactly mm. something that was neurological or based in your actual brain. That's a pretty scary concept. And it's frightening to consider that once you were admitted to one of these institutions, it would seem like it would be pretty hard to get out. Very, very difficult to get out. By the 1870s, they were incredibly overcrowded and thus a lot more difficult to administer. So you can imagine getting literally lost in a system like this, right? Right. And I'm sorry, you mentioned people who spoke in a foreign tongue. These were immigrants, probably, I would imagine, who were not able to make themselves understood. And thus, they kind of fell through the cracks and wound up in an asylum. Yep, in the wrong place at the wrong time. They got themselves confused in a situation, couldn't explain themselves, then got sent over to the island. Sometimes people got sent to the wrong place, like they meant to go to the Alms house and said they got checked Ugh. into the asylum. It's, so Blackwell's Asylum, which was built for about... About 200 to 300 patients, like when it first opened, by the 1870s had 1,400 patients in the asylum itself. So seven times as many people as, as it was intended for were being crammed into this place. Well, everything was overcrowded in the 1870s, right? So it's not surprising to hear that the asylum, but it's just sort of a terrifying experience. Well, did the public know about these places? Was anybody writing about it or talking about this in the press? It had a very unpleasant reputation, obviously, but it, there were so many issues. There were so many things that needed attention in New York that these institutions were certainly not getting that. Writers at the time would visit, some would write about the institution, such as Charles Dickens on his tour of America right. in 1842 visited the asylum and said, quote, Everything had a lounging, listless, madhouse air, which was very painful. The moping idiot, cowering down with long, disheveled hair. 
the gibbering maniac with his hideous laugh and pointed finger. And I won't read the rest of the quote because it's kind of hideous. And so they weren't giving him the propaganda tour. <laughs> they were. I'm not sure there was a propaganda he was tour. Seeing warts and all. And that was like in 1842. So 45 years later, by 1887, that reputation of woe and despair had actually intensified. But Dickens was on a tour and he was writing, I guess, some dispatches for newspapers. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he was also an author of books. Were reporters given access? Newspaper reporters? Well, yeah, that's the funny thing. He's sort of also condescending in his sort of his approach of sort these things. <laughs> but newspapers weren't actually given like direct access, right? Because um, the city knew that these these institutions were in a terrible shape. So it would require a little creativity if you wanted to expose them. And here comes into the picture the New York World which was the newspaper of Joseph Pulitzer, who is, this is interesting, 40 years old at the time of our tale. So oh, a, wow. hearty, a hearty man on his way to becoming a legend of journalism. Yeah, I just I always think of him as somebody who's at least 70 or something. <laughs> yeah, he was only like 40 it, right? at the time. So, so Pulitzer had the world, but he had some competition in the hot New York battle of the, the newspaper titans of the time. Right. Now, I had mentioned in the comic book show this, uh, this past summer on the history of comic books a little bit of this because comic books were born from the rivalry between Pulitzer's newspaper and rivals like William Randolph Hearst. They create the tenets of modern journalism, much of the bad parts as well as the good parts, this headline-grabbing, salacious stories, but it was also within this that comics were created. And in fact, it's from the creation of The Yellow Kid, the very first comic strip, that we get the name yellow journalism and how it was applied then, meaning insane, scandalous headlines that were developed to sell newspapers. As they dove headfirst into sensational stories with headlines that would then get barked out by little newsies on the streets. Right. Pulitzer bought the world in 1883. It was a veiling newspaper, but of course his innovations, his ideas helped make it one of the most successful papers in New York. In fact, by 1890s, he would build the tallest building in the world for its offices here on Park Row, which was the center of the newspaper business. But let's get back to 1887. Their offices were at 32 Park Row, so just sort of smack dab in the middle and right across the street from City Hall. So one day in 1887, A confident, forceful young woman marched into the offices of the New York world and tried to get in. Well, now let's rewind a second. I like where you've taken the story, but I'm going to pull it back a little bit. Oh, yeah. Let's go back to May 5th, 1864, and the small town of Cochrane Mills. I'm even going to call it a Hamlet (laughs) in western Pennsylvania, where Elizabeth Jane Cochrane was born. The family was pretty well off. They quickly moved to Apollo, Pennsylvania, which is a small town outside of Pittsburgh. Her father, Michael Cochran, had immigrated to the U.S. from Ireland, and he worked in a mill. Classic success story. He did very well and started buying real estate. She was the second of five children. Her mother dressed her in lots of pink, which earned her the nickname Pink. And she had a pretty lovely little upbringing. Sounds like a lively household. Well, things got much more difficult for the family when young Elizabeth Jane was six years old in 1870, when her father died rather unexpectedly, didn't really leave behind a will, and his estate was divided up, mostly going to children from a previous marriage, which Hmm. meant that Elizabeth's mother... 
Pink's mother and her siblings, and Pink herself, were thrown into a pretty sad situation. Her mother would remarry, but that was a disaster. The guy was an abuser. So she divorced her husband, which was pretty unusual Uncommon, at the time. Yeah. And the young Elizabeth testified at the trial when she was only 14 years old. And she resolved to do whatever was necessary to take care of her mother and, and help out with her family. So she went off to boarding school thinking that she would become a teacher. And she even added an E to the end of her name to make it sound more sophisticated. So her name is now... Elizabeth Jane Cochran, but with the Cochran with an E at the end. Right. So she has so lots Cochran. more E's. Lots yes. of E's here. Well, it sounds more sophisticated. Cochrane. But unfortunately, she had to drop out of boarding school after only a semester because the family couldn't afford it. In 1880, when she was 16, they moved to Pittsburgh, and Elizabeth would take any jobs that she could get. But what she really wanted to do was write she was bright, she had an opinion, and she read the papers. In the city at the time, Pittsburgh had 10 of them, had 150,000 people wow. living there, and 10 newspapers because it was going through a boom time. So I assume that there were opportunities for women as journalists, or at least writers for these newspapers, but just maybe in limited sections of the newspaper. Well, there were very few women writing for papers at the time in the 1880s, and those who were, were overwhelmingly, were writing, quote-unquote, women's stories. So these were things like about the fashion of the time, or about cooking, about housekeeping. Childcare. Childcare, exactly. Home economics, these sorts of things. But they had really the entire deck stacked against them, because not only were they less inclined to progress on their careers, but they weren't compensated at the same rate at all as their male counterparts, and you know, dealt with sexual advances and harassments in the office all the time. So how did she get in here with one of these editors from Pittsburgh? Well, there was a newspaper called The Dispatch, which was her favorite newspaper. And there was a regular column called The Quiet Observer, which was written by an older man named Erasmus Wilson. <laughs> Which is a cranky old name for a cranky old man. Wow, it sounds like something to curl up with on a Sunday afternoon. Erasmus Wilson's. Um, well, in, in his column, he really waxed on about the good old days. And in one particular column, he lamented about the progress being made in women's rights and chided women for even wanting to get some of the same rights as men and told them that they should basically just stay home. But Elizabeth was understandably upset by this, and she wrote, she wrote a rebuttal to cranky old Erasmus's column in which she stood up for working women and the terrible conditions that they had to endure, taking care of families and home and children and at the same time struggling to make any money. But Elizabeth couldn't sign it with her own name because that just wasn't done at the time, especially by women. So she signed it Lonely Orphan Girl. And so did the little orphan girl response get her into the newspaper? Well, there was a problem here, of course. They didn't know how to get in touch with this little orphan girl. So how did they find her? Well, so it turns out that the newspaper editor, George Madden, he was impressed by it. He did want to get in touch with her. So he, he published an ad in the next day's paper asking for the little orphan girl to come to the newspaper office to identify herself. So she did. She showed up at the next day and met with George Madden. Turns out he didn't print her letter. 
He oh. just wanted to get her in because he was impressed by it, and he wanted her to tackle an article and see how she could do. So it was an unintentional resume. And it worked. She proved herself with her first article, and it ran under the byline of Little Orphan Girl, and she came on staff, but she needed a new name because, you know, she couldn't just keep writing as Little Orphan Girl. That seemed pretty odd. And she couldn't use her fancy name with the E at the end, right? She, she chose a new name. <laughs> Well, she couldn't use her fancy real name because most women at the time weren't writing under their real names. They were they actually did have pseudonyms because some people still felt that it was improper for a woman yeah. to be working and to be so publicly working. A little brazen for a woman to have and express an opinion. So obviously she needed to hide behind a different name. So they sat there, she and George Madden, trying to work out what could be Elizabeth Cochrane's new name. When wouldn't you know it, a copy boy, according to legend, he was whisking back and forth some copy from one editor to the next, and he was whistling a popular Stephen Foster melody of the time called Nellie Bly. And like that, voila, Nellie, spelled N-E-L-L-Y, B-L-Y, could be a great new name for Elizabeth Cochrane, and they used it as a byline for the next article, sent it off to the typesetter, who screwed up and wrote N-E-L-L-I-E, and, well, they just went with it. So if he had been whistling Dixie, that would have had a different outcome altogether. Oh, my word. That would have been a disaster. (laughs) What is she best known for writing about in Pittsburgh? Well, she worked there for a couple years, and she covered a lot of issues, difficult issues that were facing women, especially in uh, the booming factory scene, which won her some respect But the paper didn't keep her only writing those kinds of interesting investigative pieces. She also had to do those women's stories that we were talking about as well, and she didn't really care for those. So she literally looked for anything else to cover, even going so far as to move herself and her mother to Mexico to serve as the Pittsburgh Dispatch's foreign correspondent in Mexico to cover stories happening there. Well, that's a bold move. So she was there for about five months and covered first kind of some like soft stories, but then she got increasingly interested in the corruption that was happening at different levels of government, which got her into some trouble. And she basically had to bow out a month early and and race back to Pittsburgh, where she was quickly bored again with the the assignments that were thrown her way. So when she was 23 years old in 1887, she decided to make the big move to New York City. It was a city of a million and a half people. She rented a room on West 96th Street. She was not accompanied by her mother. She was living on her own. But even though she had a nice letter of introduction from her Pittsburgh editor, editor after editor in New York basically told her that they didn't need her. They didn't need or want a woman reporting on serious news because it just, it wasn't done. Why would they hire a woman to do that when a man would be so much more capable, they said. You know, they didn't want a woman to be out there covering the next fire, you know, being pushed around in the streets by mobs who they might be trying to cover. It just seemed too dangerous for a woman to cover. Plus, you know, many of these editors suggested that maybe women were too emotional, quote unquote, Hmm. to to cover the stories correctly. On top of it, these news offices were, of course, filled with men. And we're talking the Victorian era where you would have maybe a woman who came in and would be too scandalous and too disruptive. But they were smoking cigars all day, you know, sitting around using some colorful language that women should certainly not hear. Although I imagine Nellie used a few of it herself against those very same editors. (laughs) All in good time. 
Well, Nellie's luck really ran out that September in 1887 when her purse was stolen, and with it, her entire life savings of about $100. She was out of cash, she didn't have a job, she was living in New York City, and she didn't know what to do. She borrowed 10 cents from her landlady, she hopped on a train downtown, and she marched in to the offices of the New York world and made her way up to the office of John Cockerell, who was the editor. She told his assistant sitting outside his door that she needed to see him and that she wasn't going to leave until he came out to see her. Obviously, the assistant was not thrilled by this and said, you can just go take a flying leap. But she wouldn't leave. She said she had an amazing story for an investigative piece for for the world. And if he didn't come out and let her pitch it to him, she was going to take it to the competitors. And she waited and she waited. Finally, the door opened and the busy Mr. John Cockrell let her in. She pitched her idea. Which was about Blackwell's Island, right? No. Her idea was actually to cover the terrible plight facing the immigrants coming from Europe aboard the passenger ships. She proposed to head to Europe and come back in steerage class with immigrants coming over and report on the terrible plights. This is an incredible story. Right. And nobody was doing it. The editor was really into the idea. He said, well, you know what? I'm going to talk it over with the publisher, Joseph Pulitzer. In the meantime, here's a $25 retainer for your services. And she came back the next day. He had talked it over with the boss and Pulitzer didn't like it. Didn't didn't like this idea. Well, no, I mean, it sounds good to us, but they didn't know who this woman was, you know, and he thought, well, that sounds like something that you would send a man on. It's also costly. Well, but they had money. But they didn't know who she was. <laughs> they came back, however, with a counteroffer. They had heard a report that out of Blackwell's Island, there was a systematic mistreatment of the patients happening. And so it was actually the editor, John Cockerell, who proposed to Nellie the idea of going undercover out of Blackwell's Island to report on any sort of abuse that these patients were experiencing. That's a pretty good idea, of course. Mm-hmm. However... How do you really pose as an insane person? I mean, you have to, you can't just like check in yourself. Well, yeah, there are a couple big catches to this whole story, right? And that's the first one. And then there's another big one we're going to get to in a second. Mm -hmm. But yeah, how does she get into an insane asylum when she's going to have to be diagnosed with insanity Mm -hmm. by medical professionals? Well, she's going to get there by acting insane. She's going to actually become like an actress here. Right. She's going to have to like pull off quite a performance. And so that night she went home. She stayed up all night. She spent most of the night just looking at herself in a mirror. Her (laughs) eyes just like as open as wide as they possibly could. Right. She tried to spook herself out. She turned down the lights. She just tried to think about scary stories. The next morning on September 23rd, 1887, Nellie left her rented room exhausted and headed down to 2nd Avenue and 5th Street to the temporary home for females. She walked in a daze down 2nd Avenue. She knocked on the door and was led to a back room and checked into this dismal place. She sat inside with some other women. They ate a meal that completely repulsed her, and she worked her best to seem odd and ill at ease, responding rather nonsensically to the questions that were posed to her by the other boarders. Like, where is she from? Who are you? What's your story? What an intense performance here. <laughs> yeah, and well, she, what she decided to do was start to act paranoid. So she responded by acting as if she was afraid of other people. One woman had taken pity upon her and told her that, look, everybody there works. So what is it that you do to work? Nellie looked around and said, Do they? 
I said in a low, thrilling whisper. Why they look horrible to me, just like crazy women. I am so afraid of them. There are so many crazy people about, and one can never tell what they will do. Then there are so many murders committed, and the police never catch the murderers. So she was really selling this to everyone surrounding her. It sounds like she was giving her all to this to to get herself committed. Yeah, that was her big task at hand, was to have these women report her somehow as terrifying and insane. And she was succeeding because all the other women there, the other women sitting around, they kept their distance from her, except one, a nice woman named Mrs. Kane, who took her in as a roommate. Because on top of everything else, Nellie had been assigned to sleep in a room with a roommate. And after that little performance that night, Nellie's roommate, who she was assigned to, said, I am not sleeping with that woman. (laughs) Because she was afraid to go to sleep. you know, And she was afraid that she'd be attacked in the night by by this woman. And it seems like Nellie was prepared to just act her pants off throughout the evening. And the next morning, Nellie launched into a whole performance about how she couldn't find her trunks. Her trunks being her, like, luggage. Which she didn't have. Which she didn't have. (laughs) But she kept saying, like, now where have I put my trunks? Can somebody help me find my trunks? You know, so she started in on the second bit of theater. Mm -hmm. The woman who helped run the place, a woman Nellie called the assistant matron, Mrs. Stannard, she had had enough. She called the police, and this started a whole process where Nellie was taken to the nearby Essex Market Police Courts, Greg, down mm. the Lower East Side. And the police officers who were accompanying her were always saying, oh, yeah, we're going to uh, help you find your trunks. The judge looked at her and said, here is a poor girl who has been drugged. She looks like my sister, and anyone can see she's a good girl. What the judge decided to do was send her off to Bellevue Hospital to kind of sleep it off. He thought, well, she could spend a couple days at Bellevue. Like it was temporary. It was temporary. They're going to like get to the bottom of who she is, send her off to Bellevue, let the drug wear off, and you know, then help her find her way, unless something deeper is wrong with her. So she stays at Bellevue for a few days, right? Right. Three so- days total. But she's, of course, not getting any better because, of course, she's controlling and modulating this performance. But it's not like they weren't trying because people were working on her case. They were bringing in the press to write about her. So people were talking about the mystery woman at Bellevue Hospital, trying to figure out if anybody knew who she was. So she was making the newspapers, even as she was attempting to work on a story herself. Right. And finally, they pronounced her insane. She wrote... Positively demented. A hopeless case. She needs to be put where someone will take care of her. After this, she continued, I began to have a smaller regard for the ability of doctors than I had ever had before, and a greater one for myself. I felt sure now that no doctor could tell whether people were insane or not, so long as the case was not violent. On the third day, she was boarded onto a filthy boat with four others and taken in the direction of Blackwell's Island. Once they arrived at the island, when a guard walked up to escort her in, she looked at him and said, What is this place? I asked of the man who had his fingers sunk into the flesh of my arm. Blackwell's Island, an insane place where you'll never get out of. And then it hit her. And this was the second point that I was referring to, Greg. She had indeed succeeded at this moment in getting to Blackwell's Island. But once she was in the asylum, how in the world was she going to get out? We'll get to that terrifying story 
In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Quote, The insane asylum on Blackwell's Island is a human rat trap. It is easy to get in, but once there, it is impossible to get out. Those were words written by Nellie as she would later describe her experiences, which I will attempt to summarize in our next section. So you had gotten us to the doorway, basically, of Blackwell's Island. She's being ushered into the main building, into that octagon that we mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. Now, while she was being collected with other women waiting to be processed, she made a friend named Tilly. Poor Tilly was suffering from a self-described nervous debility. Now, a nervous debility, Tom, is just a general phrase for depression or nervous breakdowns. But back then, it could have been diagnosed as actual insanity. There was another woman with Nellie here, a German woman, who couldn't actually make herself understood. They weren't calling an interpreter. She was this German woman who probably had nothing mentally wrong with her. She was just confused, frightened, and she didn't know where she was. She was thrown into the asylum before Nellie. So Nellie was finally brought in after seeing these people go in and having them be admitted. She was interviewed and examined by doctors. Doctors who, by the way, were aware of her reputation because of these newspaper articles. Ah, so they knew about this mysterious woman. Mm -hmm. She's already making a name for herself, interestingly. Well, after the examination, she was brought into this gigantic sitting room where all of the new patients were awaiting their assignments into rooms inside of the asylum. She looked around the room and later she wrote, quote, Everything was spotlessly clean, and I thought what good workers the nurses must be to keep such order. And a few days after, how I laughed at my own stupidity to think the nurses would work, unquote. They were later called to dinner, and the women were actually forced to stand in front of this open window. And they were all freezing. They were just basically just wearing their street clothes, and it was very cold, and it was right off the water, so it was very frigid that night. Of these women, quote, some were chattering nonsense to invisible persons. Others were laughing or crying aimlessly. And one old gray-haired woman was nudging me and with winks and sage noddings of the head and pitiful uplifting of the eyes and hands was assuring me that I must not mind the poor creatures as they were all mad. 
So they sat down for dinner, the first supper here, and she had a rather loathsome dinner of bread and prunes. Oh, how dismal. (laughs) After dinner, the patients then entered the bath. She was, in fact, stripped naked and thrown into an ice-cold bath. Quote, rub, 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 went the old woman, chattering to herself. My teeth chattered and my limbs were goose-fleshed and blue with cold. Suddenly I got, one after the other, three buckets of water over my head. Ice cold water into my eyes, my ears, my nose, and my mouth. I think I experienced some of the sensations of a drowning person as they dragged me gasping, shivering, and quaking from the tub. For once, I did look insane. And this is all on the very first day? The very same September day, cold day. Well, she's finally thrown into her own room for the first night. She would be with others later. Forced to sleep in an oilcloth and a rough wool blanket. And not given a nightgown, quote, I could not sleep, so I lay in bed picturing to myself the horrors in case a fire should break out in the asylum. Every door was locked separately, and the windows are heavily barred, so that escape is impossible. Not a dozen women could escape. All would be left to roast to death. Unless there is a change, there will someday be a tale of horror never equaled. At five in the morning, she was given a rude awakening, some new clothes to wear, an ill-fitting dress, which she she mentions was the first time she really missed a mirror. She wanted to look at herself and kind of just see how disheveled she was and put herself into some sort of shape. Well, after breakfast, which comprised of black dry bread, cold oatmeal, and a dead spider, which she found in her food. Oh. She was given another exam by a, quote, flirty young doctor, unquote. I can only imagine what that might mean in Mm. this horrible situation. Well, she spent the whole day with the other women doing the housework. So, yeah, those nurses, they weren't doing anything. They were standing over the women, screaming at them, yelling at them, directing them to to clean everything. Did they even get to go outside? All of this is taking place inside. So, you know, she would be over here for over the course of 10 days, and one day would be the same as the last. On all these days, what they would look forward to the most is their little outdoor, like, late morning promenade. Hey, that sounds kind of cheery. Look, I mean, the... The view is probably still nice back then, right? But this is your only pleasure, really, of the day. Or was it pleasure? Nellie, on this first day, would wander around with the other other women here. Now, while she was there, she noticed another group of women that were actually tied together, almost like a chain gang, but they were tied with a cable rope and harshly guarded and led around. These were, she would later find, the quote-unquote dangerous and suicidal women. Quote, one woman had on a straight jacket and two women had to drag her along, crippled, blind, old, young, homely and pretty. One senseless mass of humanity. No fate could be worse. But as she's out here with with all of these other women and she's talking to them and Mm -hmm. interacting with them and interacting with the nurses and with the doctors, is she still doing her little mentally ill routine or has she reverted to being just Nellie Bly? Well, her number one objective at this point is actually to interview the other patient. She would eventually later claim that she interviewed 45 women. And she would approach them as a sane person. Oh, she would act completely sane. 
Let me bring up two anecdotes about a few particular women that she met that, in fact, fit these qualifications. Quote, soon after my adventure, a girl named Urena Little Page was brought in. She was, as she had been born, silly. And her tender spot was, as with many sensible women, her age. She claimed 18 and would grow very angry if told to the contrary. The nurses were not long in finding this out and they teased her. Urena said Ms. Grady, who was one of the nurses, the doctors say that you are 33 instead of 18, and the other nurses laughed. They kept up this until the simple creature began to yell and cry, saying she wanted to go home and that everybody treated her badly. After they had gotten all the amusement out of her they wanted and she was crying, they began to scold her and tell her to keep quiet. She grew more hysterical every moment until they pounced upon her and slapped her face and knocked her head in a lively fashion. This made the poor creature cry the more, and so they choked her. Yes, actually choked her. Then they dragged her out the closet, and I heard her terrifying cries hushed into smothered ones. So essentially what was going on, what she was seeing happen, is that people who were not mentally stressed out were becoming so within the institution here. And the patients were routinely being abused by those who were supposed to be taking care of them. On all levels, from the nurses verbally and physically being neglected by the doctors and the environment, everything from the food to the dress to the accommodation was completely inadequate for a human being. One of the most horrifying stories that she recounts was uh, this lady named Miss Cotter, a, quote, pretty delicate woman who one day thought that she saw her husband coming up the walk, like walking towards the asylum, perhaps to come get her. So she was in line getting food at that time. She ran outside to go meet her husband. Well, it wasn't her husband, but because of this act of defiance, she was actually locked away. Um, as Ms. Cotter later said, quote, The remembrance of that is enough to make me mad. For crying, the nurses beat me with a broom handle and jumped on me, injuring me internally, so that I shall never get over it. Then they tied my hands and feet, and throwing a sheet over my head, twisted it tightly around my throat so I could not scream, and thus put me in a bathtub filled with cold water. They held me under until I gave up every hope and became senseless. Then they pulled out my hair by the roots so that it will never grow again. That was a quote from Mrs. Cotter. Ten days of this, Nellie is, of course, breaking down herself. She has plenty of material, but now she needs to get out of there. Right. Back to the original question that I posed before the break. How was she going to get out? It wasn't like she was writing these stories in real time or they oh, no. were getting published in the press. Well, she wasn't even allowed to have a pen or a, a pencil or a piece of paper. So she's just taking in all of these experiences and trying to remember them as best she can. How in the world is she supposed to get out of there? She had to take it by faith that Pulitzer and her editor had a game plan to get her out of there. I mean, this is a big leap of faith. They could have just forgotten about her. Well, right? Or they couldn't have had the poll necessary to get her out just because they're powerful members of the press doesn't mean that they can That's a good you know, point. rig the system and that and that the asylum has to bend to their will well luckily one day 10 days after she was first admitted an attorney for the new york world came to the asylum and told the administrators there that nelly actually had some friends that lived in the city and they would now say that they could take care of her 
and that she didn't need to be using the resources of the asylum anymore. And if they would grant permission for her to leave and be sort of checked in with her friends in Manhattan. So she would be given over to their responsibility. Right. And it's overcrowded here. So, uh, you know, they must have delighted to hear, like, getting one of these patients off their hands, right? Did the lawyers also tell these officials at Blackwell's Island that Nellie was actually a reporter for the New York world? They kept her identity secret because, of course, they didn't want to at least spill the beans at the end because... That could have shown their hand here, and it may have ruined what then turned out to be an incredible story. And so Nellie was freed from Blackwell's Island, or as she says, quote, The bars were down, and freedom was sweeter to me than ever. Soon I was crossing the river and nearing New York. Once again, I was a free girl after 10 days in the madhouse of Blackwell's Island. Well, just a few days later, on October 9th, 1887, came the first report from Nellie Bly for the New York World under the headline, Behind Asylum Bars. The following week came the second part called Inside the Madhouse. So it ran in these two sections. And then, of course, many follow-ups afterwards. But this created such a sensation. It made Nellie an instant star. It greatly increased the circulation of the newspaper for, you know, just because of this article. I mean, this was true impact journalism, right? So there's this commercial impact. I would hope that there was also an impact just in the way that the mental health system was handled here. There was a grand jury investigation called, because of her story, not only to look at the conditions that were exhibited in the article, the horrible conditions, but let's be honest, the real embarrassing part of this was the fact that they checked in an actress, a woman who was acting insane, right. and that they would be so easily faked by this woman. She fooled them to get in, and then once she was inside, she found people who she found to mm-hmm. be perfectly sane herself. It would take almost a dozen years, but eventually the asylum on Blackwell's Island would be closed for good in February of 1901. But for Nellie, this story, which was truly a painful experience, this made her career. She became the most famous female reporter in America. Maybe even the world. What's really ironic and odd about the Nellie Bly story is the fact that this story, however, would not be the defining episode in her career because many people would come to associate her name with her next big stunt that she would pull a year afterwards um, in 1888 to tap into the success and the popularity of the Jules Verne novel that had come out in 1873 around the world in 80 days, about this adventurer who had striving to circle the globe uh, to win a bet in 80 days. They cooked up the idea to race against this fictional character, Phileas Fogg. (laughs) So on November 14th, 1889, Nellie headed off on a voyage that would take her nearly 25,000 miles. And all that she packed was the two-piece dress that she was wearing, a purse, some undergarments, some toiletries, some cash, and her reporter's pad. I mean, that is hoofing it in the late 19th century. That's like basically just taking a backpack and a granola bar. 
<laughs> but Greg, she wasn't alone. Well, she was technically alone, but her story wasn't left alone because papers were a dirty business, of course, and the New York Cosmopolitan magazine saw a rare chance here to steal some of her buzz. So they hired another prominent journalist by the name of Elizabeth Bisland to join in and race against Nellie, but go in the opposite direction. So she would circumnavigate the globe, but she would first take a train out to California and from there head west. So essentially out Nellie Blying, Nellie Bly. Indeed. Talk about an amazing race. (laughs) If only they had TV cameras back then. (laughs) Well, in the end... Nellie traveled to England, to France, the Middle East, off to Asia, Japan, and China before sailing off for California, where she arrived on January 21st and then took one of Pulitzer's private trains because she was falling a little behind (laughs) across the country, pulling into Jersey City because that's where she took off from her steamship. The mayor of Jersey City came up to um, welcome her home with a bouquet of flowers at the very same time Pulitzer had cannons shooting off in Battery (laughs) Park and then over in Fort Greene as well, firing off a huge celebration. I wish I would arrive at Newark in such a fashion. (laughs) Well, if you circumnavigate the globe, Greg, and then pull into Jersey City, I'm sure somebody will greet you. Okay, good. Somebody chasing after you, probably. (laughs) So... It took less than 80 days, right? It, in fact, it took 72 days, 6 hours, and 11 minutes. Wow. And what happened to Elizabeth? Did she beat her? No, Elizabeth it took four and a half days longer. Oh. But she still beat Mr. Fogg. Yes, she did. She still beat Jules Verne's fictional protagonist. It's easy to beat those. Tom, I have an idea. Why don't you and I follow in the footsteps of Elizabeth and Nellie, and you go one direction and I'll go the other, and we'll have a race around the world. And who is going to underwrite that (laughs) massive waste of money? (laughs) We'll work out the details later. Okay. Well... Things soured a little bit with the New York world. And in the meantime, she and this sort of success of the style of reporting that she had pioneered had inspired a whole legion of copycats. Uh, In fact, an entire genre of investigative reporting done by women who went into dangerous situations and then reported about it. These were a group of women referred to as stunt girls. The world started running more articles written by a Meg Merrilies. A a woman who got herself into all kinds of trouble. She got thrown into jail, admitted to run-down hospitals. She was training lions in a circus. She was lowered into underground vaults. Turns out that there was no single Meg Merrilies. This was a pseudonym that was being used by a whole bunch of different female reporters. So this really is like reality TV. Yeah, just 1890s style. A few years later, in 93, she would go back to the world as a featured reporter, and she did some really kind of high-profile interview stuff. But then she did fall back into some of, you know, more stunt journalism. She checked herself into a sanatorium for alcoholic women, went through a terrible cure, quote-unquote. She spent the night in a haunted house in New Jersey, (laughs) armed with a revolver, you know, this kind of stunt journalism. Yeah, I read one in which she tried out to be a ballerina, (laughs) which I I don't really know how one just gets quickly up to speed with that. And yet, you know, given the media landscape today, it's so easy to envision this. Yeah, it kind of kind is. Of it's true. 
Well, nothing is obvious about Nellie Bly's story. Neither is the fact that a couple years later, when she was 31, she met a very wealthy man named Robert Seaman, who was 40 years her senior and the president of the American Steel Barrel Company and the Ironclad Manufacturing Company. And they got married. They lived in a lovely brownstone at Fifth Avenue and 37th Street. And she seemed relieved to no longer have to do these stories. So Nellie Bly went from investigative slash stunt journalist to a much more comfortable and much wealthier existence on Fifth Avenue. But I would say a more quote unquote normal and perhaps boring existence after the things that she's just done. Well, she is still Nellie Bly. She helped him run his company. And in fact, a few years later, when he passed away, she really helped run the company. She even dabbled in inventing herself. She invented a kind of milk can and even a garbage can. (laughs) She invented a garbage can? You did not know that this story was going to take that turn. But it doesn't surprise me, though. I mean, it seems like something that you... Oh, when Nellie Bly was in her 40s, she invented a garbage can. That's not surprising. Aren't you glad that we got to this point in the story, Greg? (laughs) I'm very glad. I'm glad her life didn't go to waste. I fear you're recycling some jokes, Greg. (laughs) Maybe I'm just a little trashed by this point. Moving on. The company (laughs) went bankrupt under Nellie's guidance, and she headed back to the land of reporting, which she did with gusto, with Nellie Bly-style gusto. She covered World War I. She covered the suffrage movement. However, in January of 1922, Nellie came down with pneumonia and died on January 27th at 57 years old. Her funeral was held at the Church of the Ascension on 5th Avenue and 10th Streets, and she was buried in a small grave in Woodlawn Cemetery in the Bronx. I'd just like to add that she is an incredibly influential figure in the world of journalism. In the 1970s, so almost a complete century after her, many people would compare Geraldo Rivera's expose on on the Willowbrook State School in Staten Island to what Nellie Bly did. It certainly was a version of that for the modern age, right? And so, and this kind of intrepid, perhaps a little reckless journalism um, is still being practiced today, obviously. So she kicked off a, a whole new genre. And even today, in 2015, it is thanks to investigative work that we're still reading about otherwise unreported abuse that's taking place in prisons, in hospitals, in nursing homes. These are unfortunately conditions that still persist. But nobody did it like Nellie Bly. For more on the subject, head to the blog where we will have some photos of Nellie Bly and illustrations that ran in the New York world. Check it out at BoweryBoysHistory.com. Now, we should mention a book that I reviewed on the blog a couple years ago when it came out, but he's one of my favorite history writers. He's fantastic. The book is called 80 Days, Nellie Bly and Elizabeth Bislin's History-Making Race Around the World by Matthew Goodman. This is a really entertaining book. This is a fantastic book. We both read it. Yeah. The book is focused on the competition between Nellie and Elizabeth, 
as they both went their separate ways around the globe. But it really does a great job as well at telling Nellie's backstory, telling how she got to that moment where she took the race for the world. And of course, some of the quotes that we have read in this show can be found in a book that you can read. It's in the public domain. You can probably print out a copy. It's 10 Days in the Madhouse by Nellie Bly, which are the actual articles that were written for the New York world. Check us out on Facebook, of course, and Instagram and Twitter, where I'm following along with a medical-themed show, since we're sort of stuck in this world here with the Nick. And Greg, you know today is Monday, November 9th, 2015, and a fun thing happened today. I sent out our newsletter. Oh, it was filled with a lot of juicy information, Bowery Boys-related information. That's right. If you would like to get the newsletter, you can head to BoweryBoysHistory.com and click on subscribe. While you're there, you could also click support the show or go directly to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. For as little as a dollar a month, you can become a patron of the show, help us in our quest to produce twice as many shows. And along the way, you'll be able to download the extra special VIP bonus podcast that we make for each of these shows, including the special bonus podcast that we'll be recording next week for this episode in which, Greg, you and I are heading via, I believe, a tram to Roosevelt Island to go wander around what's left of Nellie Bly's old stomping ground. We're going to stand right in front of the old asylum and perhaps even visit the lighthouse and give you a few extra nuggets Um, about this extraordinary event in New York City history. We've had fun with the the on-the-ground recording. Uh, We did one in Washington Square for the Ghost Stories podcast, and we took a walk down St. Mark's Place for the St. Mark's Show last week. So I like being out in the streets. Oh, yeah. I mean, even if it's cold weather... I would add to it. No, we're going to be on the road, so we won't be releasing a show in two weeks. Plus, we're going to be putting the finishing touches. Well, maybe I'm being ambitious. (laughs) But we'll be we're we're almost done with the Bowery Boys book and we're very, very excited about it. So we're taking the next show off, but we will It is Thanksgiving. And it's and it's also Thanksgiving. And you will be in Missouri and I'll be in Ohio. So that's true. We're allowed to eat stuffing and corn casserole (laughs) and slow baked turkey with the family. That is true. But we'll be back two weeks after that with a brand new episode. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.